With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Durst Show. Um, I hope those of you who watched uh, yesterday's show about my collection of, of books and letters and memorabilia from the Declaration of Independence uh, to, to modern times um, enjoyed it. I, I love uh, collecting. I just today bought a newspaper report uh, on the shooting of Hamilton by Burr, uh, which reported just days after the shooting that Hamilton shot in the air and didn't uh, aim at, at Burr. Um, I also have in my collection all the letters back and forth between Hamilton and Burr that caused the duel. Um, and I love having, you know, originals of things that make me feel like I'm touching like I'm touching history. I'm still in Charleston, South Carolina with my wonderful wife. We're going to the Spoleto Festival today. We watched a great, great event called Gospel to Gershwin, uh, dealing uh, with songs of, of the enslaved people, and then uh, Gershwin's songs from, from Porgy and Bess, which were written really basically in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Gershwin collaborated with a local writer who wrote a novel called Porgy, Du Bois Hayward, and uh, they wrote this great uh, uh, American opera. And uh, the church where this event took place today is just yards away from the hall in which the first declaration of secession of any state, South Carolina was the first case state to secede, um, was signed. And also it was just a few hundred yards away from where the Civil War began, Fort Sumter, uh, which was shot at by Confederate uh, troops at Northern troops. And, you know, we've always asked the what if question, what if um, the, the South hadn't fired on Fort Sumter and had just seceded as a matter of law and stopped paying taxes and stopped, you know, sending people to the military? Would Lincoln have invaded the South? Uh, what if? We don't, we, we really don't know. But I want to continue today and, and deal with the, with the Civil War, not necessarily because I'm in Charleston, but because the issue of the uh, the debt ceiling is has come up again, and now we've just seen just hours ago committees, the House, the Senate, they're getting closer to what should be a political resolution of this. Is It's a political issue. It's an economic and political issue, not a constitutional issue. But you can leave it to the radicals on the left to create something, manufacture, concoct something uh, in the Constitution that helps them. Um, and that's what's happened here, too. Um, people, particularly scholars, uh, some from Harvard Law School, uh, have given uh, President Biden bum advice, uh, telling him that he doesn't have to comply with the debt ceiling because the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the Save All Amendment. And we'll talk about that uh, in general in a few minutes. But the 14th Amendment um, uh, prevents of the government from going into any kind of default. So let me read you the relevant provisions of the 14th Amendment. But just before we do that, remember what the 14th Amendment is part of. It's between the 13th and the 15th. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments 
were the Civil War amendments. They were essentially the peace treaty between the South and the North, imposed by the North on the South, abolishing slavery, creating equality uh, for all. But um, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment dealt with who pays for the Civil War. Um, the, the Southern states were in debt. The Northern states were in debt. And so the framers of the 14th Amendment wrote the following. Uh, the validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, this is an important phrase, authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, meaning the Civil War, shall not be questioned. But neither the United States nor any state shall assume or, or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion against the United States, meaning the Southern states, or any claim for the loss of emancipation of any slave, but all such debts, obligations, and claims shall be held illegal and void. It's so obvious that this uh, provision of the 14th Amendment deals only with the Civil War. It talks about the freeing of slaves. And yet uh, constitutional experts, scholars, whose views are determined by the political partisanship that they espouse. For them, the Constitution is what they want it to mean politically and ideologically. And I, you know, I might be on their side uh, ideologically and politically, but I won't misread the Constitution for partisan or political ends. And so what they say is that this amendment specifically designed to make sure that people don't have to pay for their slaves if they were freed and people don't have to pay for debts incurred in fighting against the North, but people do have to pay uh, for the debts incurred by the North to fight against oppression. That that somehow has something to do with the debate in 2023 about the debt ceiling between McCarthy and, and, and Biden and uh, other more right-wing Republicans. No, no, no. It's a political issue. It's an economic issue. It's not a constitutional issue. And in any event, even if it were a constitutional issue, listen to the words of the amendment. The validity of the public debt of the United States, okay? Validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law. The debt ceiling is authorized by law. This isn't saying that acts of Congress imposing a debt ceiling are unconstitutional. That's part of the process of authorizing it by by law, but but just leave it to the constitutional experts, my former colleagues and others around the country. They'll find a way of helping the Democrats. They'll find a way of helping the left. Again, I like some of the conclusions that are reached by that kind of analysis, but I despise the analysis itself because today it could be used to help the Democrats. Tomorrow it can be misused to help the Republicans. And the Constitution means what it says. And it ought to be interpreted by the meaning that was intended by the framers. It's so interesting. Some of the same people, some of the same people who argue that, oh, the 14th Amendment shouldn't be limited to, to the Civil War. And after all, it says it uses language, the, the validity of the public debt of the United States, that's general. It should be of general application. Forget about the Civil War. Yeah, it was passed after the Civil War, but it has nothing to do with the Civil War. These very same groups of people say when it comes to affirmative action, when the 14th Amendment basically says that nobody can be de deprived of the equal protection of the law, says, oh, no, 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 that means only black people. White people can be denied equal protection of the law. No, no, no. The 14th Amendment 
was designed only to protect black people so that race-based affirmative actions and quotas that discriminate against white people, that's perfectly, the 14th Amendment has nothing to do with that. It's a civil war amendment. Yeah, it's a civil war amendment on Monday, and then it becomes a general amendment on Tuesday when that helps the left and helps the Democratic Party. It's so transparent. Anybody can see through it. And there's a third provision of the Constitution that also is being misused. It's the provision of the Constitution that says that nobody shall be allowed to be run for office in the United States who shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies, etc. Obviously, that was designed to prevent Jefferson Davis from running for president and to make sure that people who were active in the Confederacy are disqualified. It even says that Congress made by a vote of two-thirds in each house, removes such disability. It was clearly a civil war amendment, part of the peace process. And yet the same radical left constitutional distorters are saying, oh, no, no, it applies to, it applies to Donald Trump. It applies to only people who fought in the civil war plus Donald Trump. The framers knew that Donald Trump was going to come along and so they wrote this provision broadly enough to encompass Donald Trump, because Donald Trump, we know, engaged in insurrection on January 6th. So he can't run for office unless Congress, by a two-thirds vote, which obviously would be impossible, uh, allows him uh, to run. It's such hypocrisy. It, it, you know, it, it's not as bad as City University of New York Law School, which doesn't even believe in the law. They have a graduate speaking at graduation saying the law is just a manifestation of white supremacy and it basically should be disregarded. Uh, it's not as bad as, as CUNY, uh, City University of New York. I went to CUNY College. I am where I am today because of City University of New York. But the law school is an abomination. Um, uh, they decided the faculty, the entire faculty, voted to boycott academics from one country in the world. No, not Iran. No, not Syria. No, not Russia. No, not China. Israel. Israeli academics, Israeli scientists, Israeli doctors, people who want to cure diseases. No, we boycott them. We don't boycott the people who hang, who hang dissidents in Iran. They're hanging dissidents now. They just did too the other day. People who just one of them was hung for espousing atheism, another one for opposing the leadership. No, we're not going to boycott them, says the faculty of CUNY University. We're going to welcome them with an open arms, as Columbia University uh, welcomed Ahmadinejad when he was calling the Holocaust a myth. Uh, but, but we're going to boycott Israeli academics, Israeli scientists, and uh, Israelis of all kinds. By the way, only Jewish Israelis, the BDS movement, which they support, doesn't include Israelis who are Arabs or Christians. It only includes Israelis who are Jews. So it's anti-Semitism to its core. And yet it's uh, a movement that is supported by the school itself. I'm not talking about individuals exercising free speech rights. Any faculty member can stand on a soapbox in Washington Square Park um, and, uh, or, or Central Park and call for BDS against Israel, can call for death to the Jews as long as he's not inciting it immediately. That's free speech. Hate speech is free speech. Enormous difference between hate speech uh, being advocated 
uh, by the universities, uh, by people in the universities, and, and hate speech being endorsed by the city of New York, endorsed by the state of New York, which pays the multi-billion dollar budget of City University of New York. City University Law School has become a hotbed of uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Americanism. By the way, put anti-Semitism aside. The same speaker, sponsored by the university, endorsed by the university, whose speech was put on the university's website, called New York City policemen fascists, American soldiers fascists, at about the same time of Memorial Day that we're commemorating brave heroes who put their lives at risk, and many of them died, to save our freedom, policemen and soldiers. She just throws out the term fascist and talks about how America is a colonialist, imperialist uh, uh, state, as is Israel. So um, I, the, the, the idea that um, um, uh, we're, we're going to use uh, the 14th Amendment somehow, somehow to uh, permit uh, race-based quotas because it was written in the 1860s following the Civil War, and it must therefore be limited to what was intended in the Civil War, namely equality for blacks, without recognizing that it uses terms that are applicable to all. But the very same people interpret the very same amendment completely differently, depending on whose ox is being gored, depending whether the shoe is on one foot or the other foot. And that is an intolerable academic and intellectual position for people to take. And I'm going to continue to fight against it. And it will continue to make me enemies. Um, it certainly has made me enemies on the left. It has certainly made me enemies in academia. I taught at Harvard for 50 years. I have never been invited back in the last 10 years uh, during my emeritus professorship, never been invited back to give a talk at, at Harvard, even when my closest colleague, uh, the man whose career I created in law and psychiatry, the man who taught with me for 30 or well, 40 years, uh, died and had a memorial service. I wasn't even invited to that. Um, so, you know, that's that's how universities have gotten now intolerant. And I'm not talking about only City University of New York. I'm talking about Harvard. I'm talking about Yale. I'm talking about every major law school, Stanford. We had to form a group at, at, at Harvard now uh, of, of professors, a hundred or so maybe have joined, maybe a few more now, to support free speech. You need to have a group at Harvard to support free speech and academic freedom for all. Everybody at Harvard wants to support free speech for radicals and dissidents and, 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 and progressives and, and revolutionaries. That's all okay. But uh, supporting free speech for people who have a different point of view who might be conservative. Uh, no, that's not acceptable. And we need a new committee at Harvard to help uh, encourage the university to allow free speech for all, not just free speech for me, but not for, for thee. So when people talk about the 14th Amendment, go back and read it. Go back and study it. Uh, and I would say the same thing to my colleagues and my former colleagues who are now trying to use the 14th Amendment. Um, to his credit, President Biden has said, not now. He doesn't say we, have, we won't use it. He hasn't disputed it. He's basically said it would tie us up in litigation. Let's try to resolve this politically. He hasn't promised never to try to use it. And I can understand the motivation to try to find anything to avoid uh, a default on debts. The default on the American debt would be a disaster for America. And that's why we have political processes at work. That's why we have the House of Representatives or all money bills. 
must originate according to the Constitution. That's why we have the Senate, which was supposed to be the wise old men, and I use the term men advisedly, uh, who were not elected but appointed by their um, governors and state legislatures, etc., uh, to be like the House of Lords, where as the House of Representatives would be like the House of Commons. Uh, that's what was intended. We have an executive, and the executive will fight with the legislature. That's common. And hopefully they will all do what's best for the American public, which is to settle this crisis in a way that's acceptable to the majority of Americans. Nobody's going to get exactly what they want. The right-wing Republicans who won't sign on to this deal won't get what they want. They want all kinds of cuts in spending and all that kind of thing. And they're not going to get exactly what they want. And some of the Democrats don't want to have any cut in spending. They're not going to get exactly what they want. It's in the nature of politics that you have to compromise. And the 14th Amendment can't step in and suddenly constitutionalize that issue and say, oh, uh, no, 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 this is not up to the legislature. This is up to the Supreme Court, as if the Supreme Court would decide it any differently. Certainly not this Supreme Court. It would not use the 14th Amendment to rescue this uh, process from, from politics. So I hope we'll see it resolved politically, but do not believe academics who tell you that the 14th Amendment demands this or demands that. Academics, just many of them, not all of them, but many of them cannot be trusted to tell you the truth about what the Constitution means. For them, the Constitution means what they want it to mean. For them, the Constitution means what's good for the left, what's good for progressives, what's good for Democrats. The vast majority of academics, I think over 90%, consider themselves Democrats and members of the left. That's okay, but don't misinterpret the Constitution for your students and for the rest of Americans in the hope that your credentials as somebody who teaches at Harvard or teaches at Yale is going to persuade them of something that the evidence doesn't suggest. I ran into this, of course, when I defended the Constitution on behalf of President Trump during his impeachment. It's as clear as could be that the Constitution, in order to have an impeachment of a president, requires treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Crimes, misdemeanors, criminal-type behavior, behavior like treason and, and, and bribery. You cannot read the Constitution any other way. In the 19th century, everybody read it that, that way. Uh, deans of law schools read it that way. Justices of the Supreme Court read it that way. But then, of course, you got Trump coming into office, and suddenly the Constitution means something completely different, and I become an outcast. I'm the only academic who takes that position. Believe me, every academic practically I know of would have taken that position had the shoe been on the other foot, had Hillary Clinton been elected president, and had she been impeached on the ground of abuse of power or, or, or uh, some other cockamamie uh, uh, criteria that's not in the Constitution. The Constitution, according to many academics, is what's good for their political party, what's good for their ideology, what's good for their sense of, 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 of what's right and what's wrong. That's not what makes America great. What makes America great is having a neutral Constitution, one that is equally applied to all. Let me conclude this little rant by going back to the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment says equal protection of the law. Equal protection of the law means the Constitution has to be interpreted not in a partisan manner, but in a way that passes the shoe on the other foot test. And we're moving away from that among many academics. And I hope that someday we'll 
change. And I hope someday maybe Harvard will invite me back to give a speech on that subject and to talk to academics and to talk to students and to tell them what's actually going on. But I don't think they want to hear it, even from somebody who taught there for 50 years. So let's see what happens. Um, let's take some some questions. Because I'm um, away and I don't have a fax machine in my hotel room, uh, I'm going to have to paraphrase uh, the questions, but I remember them pretty well. So the first question is very, very interesting one. It, it's in the live chat. Uh, and it basically says, um, does defamation law, the First Amendment, how does it deal with deep fakes, uh, things that, you know, are, are, are done with artificial intelligence, creating voices, creating images um, that are completely manufactured and aren't true, does defamation law apply to that? And the answer is yes. Um, if you defame somebody through artificial intelligence, you're not going to blame the machine. Um, you hold the person who created the machine's ability to defame you responsible. Now, if it just fakes history, that's not defamation. If it says the election was stolen, that's not defamation, or the election wasn't stolen, that's not defamation. But as we know from the Fox case, if somebody says that a particular machine company uh, stole the election by having a machine that uh, was hacked, um, I don't think myself that should be defamation because it's in the public interest, but the courts have held that it is. I was subject to that uh, some, some years ago. Um, some extortionist um, um, went to um, lawyers uh, and said, uh, I have pictures of people um, from Jeffrey Epstein's uh, video machine in his house. I was his video technician, totally. It wasn't true, but claimed he was and said he has pictures of prominent people having sex with, with, with young girls. And, 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 and he said to the lawyers, here's what I think you ought to do. Uh, what you ought to do is uh, go to these people and say, retain me as your lawyer, and if you do, I then can't testify against you because I've seen these pictures, but if you don't retain me as uh, your lawyer, then I'll have to go public with these pictures and you'll be horribly embarrassed because they're pictures that show you having sex with, with, with young girls. So I, and I was one of the people that was allegedly having sex with young girls. So the Times called me and, and said, uh, what do you say about it? I said, well, I didn't even have to look at the pictures. I never had sex with anybody other than my wife uh, during the relevant time period. So no, you don't even have to show me the pictures, but if you want to, please come and show them to me and my wife. And so my wife and I looked at the pictures together and they bore no resemblance whatsoever to me. Uh, nobody would ever imagine. But what happened is this guy, in order to try to collect money, went through uh, all a lot of pornographic films and identified people who looked like people who might have been involved with Jeffrey Epstein and created and concocted fake pictures of them. Uh, you can do it with photoshopping. You can do it with artificial intelligence. You can do it in any other way. But the answer to the question is clear. Um, I was defamed um, if somebody claimed that this was a picture of me. Um, eventually, the guy disappeared in the Times or an article saying he was fake. And the lawyers that did this engaged in some questionable uh, conduct. But in any event, um, uh, the answer to the question is clear. Defamation can result from the use of manipulation of evidence and the truth through artificial intelligence. Okay, next a question. Uh, a number of people 
commented about the books and pictures and documents that I showed, and there were a number of comments about George Washington's great letter to the synagogue in Truro, Massachusetts. By the way, today, I found a copy of a letter that Washington wrote to the Jews of Charleston, South Carolina, to their synagogue, uh, and I got a copy of it. Um, I own the original news, not the original letter, that's worth tens and tens of millions of dollars. Um, but I have the first newspaper report of Washington's speech uh, in which he said, basically, Jews have to be created equal of bigotry. We will no longer hear. We will give no sanction, et cetera. The first time any leader of any country basically said that Jews are, are equal. And so the question that I got is, is Washington's letter a matter of law? And the answer is no, it's not. And indeed, at the time Washington wrote this letter in 1790, a number of the states still in their constitutions discriminated against Jews they, uh, and Muslims and um, Buddhists and atheists, not just Jews, didn't usually mention Jews. Um, it sometimes talked about Jews, Turks and, and infidels. By Turks, they meant Muslims and infidels. Um, but some state constitutions and state laws did say that in order to run for office, uh, you had to take an oath to the Trinity. Um, uh, you had to support uh, Christianity. And that only got changed in the middle, in some places, or the early part of the 19th century. But in the 18th century, and at the time Washington wrote his letter, there was still discrimination, as there was in Britain. Britain had a law prohibiting anybody uh, who was Jewish from serving in parliament or from uh, uh, even, even coming into the country. So uh, Washington's brilliant, beautiful statement uh, didn't have any force of law, but it had an enormous impact on American attitudes and the American experience. Um, Jefferson. I got a number of letters about Jefferson because we're back to the old natural law uh, business. You know, Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence uh, talks about nature's law and uh, talks about, you know, and, and so the questions that come up is, can you have natural law without having religion? Um, uh, Jefferson was a deist. He believed that there was a creator um, who was a clockmaker. Uh, he basically created the universe and then left human beings to deal with our own problems. He was not an intervening God, not the God of Christianity, Judaism, um, but, but uh, a clockmaker God. That's a term that was used to describe the deist view. But if you don't believe in God at all, if you believe that um, the planets just got formed and et cetera, et cetera. Can you believe in natural law or does natural law require that you believe in a creator of some kind? It's a hard, hard question. I think it's much easier to believe in natural law if you believe that God created nature. Then you can say God created law. But if you don't have that uh, belief, um, where does the natural experience uh, come from? So that, that's, that's a hard question. Related to that question, I was asked another question uh, by, by a writer who wants to reconcile uh, Jefferson's writing of all men are created equal with his ownership of slaves. And the answer was an interesting one, very disturbing one, but an interesting one. And the answer he proposes is this. The framers of the Declaration of Independence and the early colonial people who owned slaves uh, didn't believe that enslaved people were, were, were human beings. They didn't believe that they were covered by all men are created equal. It's hard to conceptualize that. 
course they were human beings. Of course they were men and women. Of course they had children and had feelings. How can you dehumanize them in that way? But that's what enslavement did. It dehumanized. That's what obviously happened to Jews in Germany. That's why it was so easy for uh, 20, 25 year old Germans to sit and shoot a uh, hundred Jewish children um, uh, or, you know, um, put people in gas chambers. They didn't think they were killing human beings. They thought they were killing Jews. And I think that was probably true, at least according to this guy, about, uh, about um, um, people who were willing to enslave, even in the face of all men are created equal. It's interesting because Jefferson in his Writings on Virginia, which, which I've read and have a copy of, um, um, talks about uh, black slaves being morally superior to white people because they endure the suffering. He thought they were intellectually inferior, but he thought they were morally superior. So he did not think of them as uh, non-human. You can't be morally superior. A dog is not morally superior. A horse is not morally superior. But a human being, regardless of color, uh, or, or education can be morally superior. So, uh, you know, these are issues that are, are not likely uh, to be resolved uh, any time. Uh, the last question um, is, do I believe in absolute truth? Yeah, I do in science. I think that uh, even though truth in science is always being changed, but there ultimately could be an absolute truth. And I think there are absolute wrongs um, in non-science, slavery, genocide, sexism, racism. I think those are absolute wrongs, but um, absolute rights. Um, is there a right to own property? Yeah, I think there is. But what about somebody who disagrees and is a socialist? Are they empirically wrong? Um, I think history has proved them wrong. But uh, it's, it's different when you deal with scientific truth and when you deal with uh, uh, political or ideological truth. We'll continue these and other discussions uh, next week when I'm back in, in New York. See you then. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.